All right, sir. Good morning, everybody. It's good to be here with you all today. Um, I was telling somebody a minute ago just some of the uh, some of the stuff that's going on with us. If if you would just be in prayer, we um, I might have shared this last time I was here. I can't remember. But uh, I've been approved to be a church planter um, in Scotland, in the Highlands. And so um, we are kind of getting ready for that move, hopefully toward the end of the summer this year. So we're doing some support raising. We are kind of trying to cast some vision for for folks a bit. But um, definitely need a lot of prayer. We have three boys, uh, 13 11 and 5 who will probably be in the back making noise uh when they get here but that was a joke but they probably will be making noise but um but uh anyway so it's just going to be a big change and we would definitely covet your prayers for that ministry that the Lord would provide and kind of see us through we will be um plant helping plant I'll be kind of a co-planter for a church in Inverness, Scotland, in a housing project. Um, 60% of all of Scotland, they're about, live in housing projects. And housing projects are the least churched areas of Scotland. And so out of the 2% of Scotland that do profess Christianity, if you were to take that 2% and blow it up to 100%, like point something of a percent would be churches planted in, in housing projects. So um, it's abysmal. And life expectancy in Scottish housing projects, for men, it's like the last stats that I looked at were like 48 years of age. And um, drug culture is super strong there, obviously. It's, it's actually relatively safe to live because there's no gun crime. So if you want to hurt somebody, you have to exert physical force to do it. Um, you don't have to just, you know, pull a trigger. And so, um, so it's actually relatively safe, um, but the suicide rate is insane. It's so, it's, there is a spirit of suicide in the Scottish schemes in, in a way that, like, I really don't have categories for. And so um, it's a sad place to do ministry, but it's such a gospel opportunity. There needs to be churches there because they're never going to, in Scotland, these, these people are never going to go to an upper middle class church. It's never going to happen. And um, they see Christianity as an upper middle class man's game. So anyway, we are going there to, uh, I'm helping co-plant a church with the Free Church of Scotland there. A lot of prayer need, need it. So if, if you guys would please uh, keep us in mind as you kind of develop your prayer lists and stuff for this year, we could, uh, we could definitely use that. So that's just a little spiel. If you would like to know any more about that, I'd love to share um, some. But uh, other than that, let's get into the Word. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank You for Your Word. It's truth. We thank You for this morning, this uh, day of rest and gladness. Would You... Give our hearts rest. Would you make our hearts glad as we consider your truths? Um, and would you uh, just change our hearts to believe them more deeply, even than we do now? And we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, if you would, turn in your Bibles with me to Genesis 12. Genesis 12, we're going to be spending our time considering kind of a 
some snapshots into the, uh, the life of, of Abraham this Sunday and for the next couple of weeks, um, I think. So uh, Abraham is this towering figure in the Scriptures. So think for just a second, why would it be important? And I'm just going to go ahead and throw a question that's not rhetorical out, so feel free to give back. Um, why would it be important to consider the life of Abraham or Abram before the name change in chapter 17. Why would it be important to consider this this figure in scripture? Any takers? Well, Abraham's our father in faith. Okay. Father in faith. What else? That's right. It's a pretty big deal. Keeps going back to that. Um, even in in uh you know, John the Baptist's dad, right, when, he's, when, uh, when Christ is born and, and all this is happening, he says this is God showing favor to our people that He promised to do, and He's referring back to the covenant of Abraham. It's kind of a big deal. Um, what else? Any, anything else that you could think why it would be important, helpful, to study the life of Abraham? Right. So yeah, so Scripture, Old and New Testament, is always referring to this colossal biblical figure. Um, just if we were to say, hey, the fact that it's in Scripture, right? Like if 2 Timothy 3.16 is, is, is real, is legitimate, all Scripture is inspired by God, it's, it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that's a case to be made why it's important to think about this. But what about... Abraham being a complex character in the biblical narrative. Would you say that? Would you say that that's, that's a fair kind of assessment? He's a complex character. He's one. He's, he's a man. And we'll, we'll look more at this next week. We'll see some of his blunders next week. But despite his, his fits and starts spiritually um, to trust in God's covenant, and God is always coming to prop him up, He's still considered as the great man of faith in Hebrews 11, which is, which is fascinating because we see, we see so much of how he's, how he's kind of shuffling his feet um, in terms of his faith commitment here. But so for, the, for this week, today, and the next couple of weeks, I'd like us just to think through that lens about Abraham in light of faith and doubt in the life of Abraham. Um, so, yeah, this morning we'll look at... Uh, here at Genesis 12. You know, it's interesting how the Bible begins. It starts with this really narrow focus with one couple, Adam and Eve, right? Um, and then it just quickly expands to greater and greater numbers of people. Chapters 1 through 11, you, if we were to do a quick survey, you would see Adam and Eve's fall into sin. You would see the flood sent by God to destroy the earth, to destroy creation because of evil. You would see the curse at Babel because uh, the curse of language at Babel because of pride and, and arrogance of mankind, God hating essentially. So, this sweeping history lesson, and then all of a sudden you get to chapter 12, and it's like time slows down. And then the, 
the, the focus narrows again to one man and one woman. It's almost like God is doing something special here, right? It, it harkens back to the one man and the one woman of the beginning, Adam and Eve. It's, almost, it's nothing less than this recreation motif that is happening through the lives of Abram and Sarah in, starting in Genesis 12. Um, it's, it, God's purpose for them is that they will be this funnel of blessing to the entire created order. Um, to, to bring, to somewhat, to take dominion, to bring order to the entire creation through them. It's this, it's the God's promise that continued with Adam and it's, it's another iteration of it through Abraham. Let's read this, the text. We're going to read uh, verses 1 through 9 this week and then next week 10 through 20. Gives us a good little break um, there right in the middle um, in the narrative, so it's really helpful. All right, verses 1 through 9, Genesis 12. Hear God's word. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. All right, amen. Um, A a couple of years ago, on the 4th of July, my wife and I were invited to go uh, to the fireworks display at the Country Club of Jackson. Has anybody ever been there for 4th of July? Country Club of Jackson? Um, it, it was our first time to be there. It's kind of like that's not the normal crowd that we, you know, hang with. Not making fun of you if you go there, um, but uh, but so, so yeah, we were we were there. We had our kids, and there's just hundreds and hundreds of people there, and um, great food, great fireworks uh, about to happen. Well, right before they light the first firework, there they turn off all the the house lights, so it's virtually pitch black. You can't see anything which is hard when you have children, right? Because you just see this mat. It's hard to see like 10, 12 feet in front of your face. It's so dark. Um, So we were like checking to make sure our kids were there. Like, okay, great. We can actually enjoy this now. Um, And so they're about to light that first firework. And then we, we see in this darkness, like we hear, well, we hear this little kid just scream. He's screaming, wailing. Um, sobbing and and we're like, what is going on? And we look back and 
And he's, he's like becoming this human pinball where he goes from person to person to person. And then I realize, oh, this little guy, he, he doesn't know where his mom is. Um, he doesn't know where his dad is. And, and then right about that time, seconds later, this woman comes and scoops him up and, and takes him. And, and then she becomes the human pinball, going from person to person to person. And then we're like, okay, she's trying, she's trying to help this. She's trying to show him, she's trying to show him where to go, his, uh, where his parents are. And seconds later, they're reunited. All is right with the world. The, the country club of Jackson can enjoy the fireworks display. Um, but you have to just think about that little guy's plight for just a minute. We've all been there, like being lost in the grocery store or something, just desperate for some kind soul um, to to come up and kind of pick us up where we have no idea where we're at, where we're going, and show us what to do, show us the way, right? I think that's exactly what we have in this narrative. We have, we have God using, in His grace, He's using the life of this man and this woman to show us what true faithfulness to Yahweh looks like. This is faithfulness and shoe leather as we consider how he's called them and how they respond and all of these elements associated with this, with this huge call um, that we have in the first half of Genesis 12. So simply it teaches us this is kind of a meditation on genuine faith. And it, there's a couple of things that, that we can draw out of this that I'd like us to kind of hang our hats on a bit. The first is that genuine faith, that true faith, is, it's unfamiliar, um, or it's unexplainable, rather, and it's unfamiliar. So just think about those categories as we try to fit things in there uh, for just the next few minutes. How true faith is, is unexplainable in one sense, and it's also unfamiliar to us in another sense. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But to think about that first, this first kind of section the unfamiliarity or the or the unexplainability rather of faith you have to appreciate abram's pedigree where he's come from the stock that he comes from he comes from good chaldean stock what do we know about the chaldeans anything from scripture that you can think of the chaldees definitely not a religiously neutral territory right what are what what kind of what kind of people are the Chaldeans? Does anybody want to take a guess? They're polytheists, right? They're definitely not monotheists. They are, uh, they're, it's a pagan land. It's, in, it's inhabited by people who worship and serve the heavenly bodies. What do we mean by that? The heavenly bodies. Astrology. Yeah. <clears throat> Astrology, right? The, the things that they can perceive in the heavenly. As they, as they gaze up at the night sky or as they see the sun burning down. So essentially, yeah, they worship the sun, the moon, and the stars. Um, Abram's father, interestingly enough, more than likely pays homage to his paganism because his father's name is Terah. Well, Terah means moon. And another kind of an aside here that's interesting that gives you a, a little bit of a window into their spiritual commitments is Terah eventually settles his entire family in Haran. So why would that be important? Well, um, in the ancient world, Haran, this area of, that we know of as Haran, was kind of this epicenter of worship for the moon god. 
and, and, and paganism, that the Chaldees would worship this moon god, the epicenter, all the kind of, all the, the, the sacrifice, all of the, um, all of the spiritual pageantry associated with this form of paganism, it was happening in Haran. So it makes sense that he would settle there. It seems to show us his commitment. This is a pagan family. Um, turn with me to uh, Daniel chapter 2, if you would, for just a minute. Somebody uh, read for me just those first few verses of, of Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, 1 through 3. Now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. And then the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to uh, understand the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to our servants, and we will declare the interpretation. That's good. Thank you. So, don't you love the way it speaks to the Chaldeans? Like it says, okay, he calls in the magicians, he calls in the enchanters, uh, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans. Like this entire people group, he just sort of names as in the same camp as magicians, as these people practicing these magic arts. Um, he, he just he throws them all in this, this lump together. Um, and they are actually the ones that speak on behalf of the group. The Chaldeans say, oh, king, you know, live forever, by the way. Um, tell us your dream and then we'll, we'll interpret it for you. And so... Just, to, just a, a way to kind of illustrate what the Chaldeans are known for, sorcery and divination. That's what they're known for, the, the entire group of people. In short, they, they didn't worship the one true God, but instead they worshiped demons. We know from the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul says that behind idolatry and idol worship is actually demon worship, essentially. So it's not too much of a stretch to say that. Um, and so when Joshua and in uh, Joshua twenty four, when he recounts Israelite history, what does he do? He he throws Abram's name along with Abram's dad and Abram's brother under the proverbial pagan bus and says that they were all pagans, all pagans. So why why is that important? Well, it's important because I have this sneaking suspicion that we like to recreate biblical characters in terms that we find appealing. Don't we? Don't we? Maybe, maybe just kind of see, and you know, Abram, he probably, probably this great grandfatherly fellow, you would just kind of tell your kids to go sit in his lap, safe, good guy, smells like cookies. Um, you know, just just probably seems like a good-hearted guy more than likely. That's that's kind of the way that I think we we oftentimes we glorify certain characters, sort of bleaching out their their sordid histories, the skeletons that they may have in their that they surely had in their their closet, and we we sentimentalize them, um, kind of whitewashing all the moral complexities of their life. I think that we can often do that. 
with biblical characters. Um, well, this is Scripture saying not so fast. When we piece together this data, it's saying, nope, this guy, he was a pagan, he did pagan things, he lived a pagan life, uh, he and his whole family. He was not seeking after Yahweh, the one true God, at all. He wasn't seeking after God. But God was seeking him. That's the point. God was seeking after him. And this is essential for us to understand because we are so prone, aren't we? We're so prone to locate the reason for God's use of Abram within Abram himself. We're so tempted to to think that God uses, He's got to use people who in just in some sense are just worthy of the use. Like maybe maybe they need like a little help, but when he finds them, they're they're pretty they're pretty good. He's he's not starting from scratch. Or he's not starting from from negatives. He's he's just kind of like adding a little more. The super added gift is all that they need. And there's there must be something within these kinds of people that just makes them a little more lovable than than other people. Otherwise, why would God do this? But the reality is that God has the track record of doing the exact opposite, right? 1 Corinthians 1, what does Paul say in verse 26? For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This is what happens when God enters into the darkness of Abram's full-fledged paganism and demon worship. He, he starts from negative, and he does a radical transformation. So the next question is, when, when God drops this spiritual atomic bomb on Abram, what, is it, what does Abram do with that? Look at verse 4. It's beautiful. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. Abram went as the Lord had told him. What in the world? <laughs> Think about that. How can he respond with this clarion willingness, this just immediacy of being pulled out of his paganism and then all of a sudden, oh, hey, polytheism is not the way. This is the one true God. And then following after, believing him enough to follow after him. How in the world can he have that kind of faith? How can we have that kind of faith? That immediacy to, to our faith. I have no idea. <laughs> Sunday school over. Um, no, but, but what I do know is ultimately the answer cannot be found from within Abram. We've just seen, right? We've just seen his lineage. We've just seen his pedigree. We've just seen his spiritual presuppositions and commitments. Joshua told us, Joshua 24. So how in the world could he do this? How, 
has nothing to do with him. And ultimately, it can have nothing to do with you either. It has to do everything with this unstoppable grace of God. If you think that you are a child of God today because of what you have brought to the table at all, then you are deluded in the highest order. Because if you believe in the great transaction of the gospel, that, that Christ, the God-man, that there's a, there's a great transaction happening where He gets your sin and He absorbs your sin like a wrath sponge on the cross, but yet you get His righteousness. And that is credited to your account where God sees that in His heavenly courtroom and you are in the courtroom of God completely as if you have never sinned. If you truly get that, you know that you bring absolutely nothing to the table spiritually except for your sin. You bring demerit to the table. And remember that line from that great Fanny Crosby hymn, which I'm, ne- I'm not accustomed to, fo- to quoting Fanny Crosby hymns, but this line is great. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. Wow. The vilest offender. I wonder who fits in that category in your mind. And if you, if you can kind of see yourself there with them. God's grace is not fixed on us because we are lovable. It's fixed on us because He's chosen to show His mercy. Not because we were wise and because we had anything good to offer Him at all. But it's to show His unstoppable grace. And this is what's happening with Abraham. Grace is absolutely... Faith, this, the call of faith is absolutely unexplainable. How desperate, right? How desperate we are or should be for the, the gasoline of, of free grace to be thrown on the fire of our faith. Because that's what's really going to ignite worship and obedience and joyful law keeping in the Christian life. So, Firstly, faith is unexplainable. The second point, any questions, any comments about any of that as we think about the unexplainability of faith? Say what you just said about the gasoline, that was good. Oh, <laughs> um, the, the gasoline of free grace thrown on the fire of our faith. Yeah, there we go. It's, yeah, it helps us worship, right? It fuels our worship. Um, yeah, any other thoughts before we move on to part two, tier two? All right. Yeah. Just what you said, uh, the phrase was really good, like the whitewashing moral complexities mm. of the lives of biblical characters. I feel like that's super, like you feel like you're making your case stronger and be like, well, look at the characters we have and they were so good and so strong. But at the same time, you could make your faith weaker because when you go through something, and you don't understand that they right. went through the same things. Right. You know, and you, you see yourself as so bad, which you are. I'm not needing to Sure, no, no, I get, I get what you're saying. You don't, you don't, if you don't have that whole background of, well, Abraham doubted and so-and-so doubted, you know. Yeah. So I'm not on this even order of just, you know, not a Christian or something right. like that. So if you've whitewashed them in your mind, you're not understanding the whole yep. story of it. So That's good. That's good. That's good. Yeah. 
This is a personal testimony. I'd like to testify. Amen. Um, <laughs> I used to have this testimony when I first thought I was saved, um, which I can't determine when that ever was for sure yeah. now. But um, that I had certain character, it wasn't character traits, but certain psychological traits that allowed me to accept this Savior, and I was just grasping right on it. Mm. I honed in on this goodness that I had that allowed me to mm. do this, and, and I said these things in my, on my great testimony. And then God decided to humble that and show me that, well, really, I came from a stock as bad as it had. Our family had Caseyism, Edgar Casey, mm. out of body travel. It had um, other other religions, mm -hmm. definitely not Christian, and. And that that was bad stuff. But I, so God taught me. He, he did humble me, and he, and he said, "Don't use that testimony anymore." <laughs> How great you were. Um, then, but now I sort of slumped back into that. Oh, of when you said, "Who are who are the really the vilest?" The, mm -hmm. When you're quoting the uh, Crosby. Mm -hmm. Well, I think of the bad people that did this and that, and I mm -hmm. think of other people. I don't. I don't think of my own stuff. Sure. I mean, it's easy to forget that it's God's grace that came and rescued you. Right. Not your greatness or and that, that, you, that you aren't so much better and far removed from the yeah. terrible hell's angel people or somebody. Yeah. Mm -hmm. whoever, whoever you visualize when you think of violence. Yeah. I love, uh, I don't know if anybody's ever read, I've got book recommender syndrome, by the way, so I'm always recommending books. I apologize. I'll probably recommend a couple of books related to this next week. But um, if anybody's never read uh, Grace, Ab Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners by John Bunyan, what an incredible read. They just re reprinted a new edition of it, Banner of Truth did. And um, I love, related to kind of what you're saying I love hearing Bunyan's testimony. One, because he's so completely neurotic. Nobody would hire this guy to be their minister. Like, I assure you, you, don't want, you would not want John Bunyan as your minister if you read Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. But it's refreshing because there's this, there's this part in it where he talks about, even after his conversion, he's, uh, he's sitting in church. He's, he's praying the Lord's Prayer with the congregation. And then all of a sudden, like he, he looks out of the windows and he sees this rock on the ground and he starts having almost this extreme temptation, this demonic temptation to start praying to that rock and to start thinking that that rock is God. And then he talks about this, another, another example where he's sitting in church again. All this happened in church is weird. Um, He's sitting in church. They're, they're taking communion. And he's not had any kind of thought like this the whole time. And then all of a sudden, he starts thinking murderous thoughts toward his brothers and sisters who are taking, who are taking of the bread and wine beside him. He doesn't know where it's coming from. He doesn't know, like, he, there's no unchecked sin in his life that he thought about or anything like that. It just all of a sudden came. And he was like, what is wrong with me? And ultimately, he says... It's so that I wouldn't trust in myself, so that I wouldn't, wouldn't kind of rest my, uh, my salvation on my laurels because I know that I'm an evil man. 
Um, just kind of weird, but, but really interesting. How even in a Christian, right, they can see such strands of crookedness um, in them. Yeah, John Bunyan, ladies and gentlemen. Um, okay, so it's unfamiliar, uh, or it's un, uh, unexplainable. Secondly, let's, let's think about this, this second point, how it's unfamiliar. And look back at the content of the call in 12.1. He says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. We need to see the difficulty of this call, how huge of a demand this is for Abram. I like to I refer to this to this call of God as the vice of God. Not like Miami Vice, but like the vice grip of God, right? The metal jaws that with each turn of the lever, like just kind of clamp harder and harder and harder. Because it seems like with each phrase here, go from your country, your kindred, and your father's house, the Lord is, is tightening the vice grip of restriction on Abram. Think about that. So his country, his kindred, is even his father's house he's got to leave. He can't take his father's house with him. He's got to leave everything, in other words, to go do this. This is hard for us to fully grasp because we live in a society, we breathe, we are, we are natural born flakes, aren't we? Like marriages last for like 30 seconds. Like our commitment, like we, we, are, we are pros at giving up on everything in the, in the, in the name of, of some individuality or something. My, my wife was telling me, uh, a few months ago about, like, oh, she saw on Instagram or something how Kevin Bacon and his wife have been married for, like, a long time. They may be divorced now. I don't know. But at, that, at least at that point, they were married. And it was, like, years. And I was like, man, that is, like, ten lifetimes in Hollywood, you know, marital life. That's crazy. Um, those marriages don't seem to last, you know, but a couple of weeks oftentimes. Um, Point being, we're just we're natural flakes. We give up on everything. And so it's hard for us to, to really grasp the difficulty of what he's being called to do, to give up country, kindred, and father's house. It's unfathomable. Because why? Sustenance is found in your kindred and in your father's house. That's how you provide for yourself. You know, we, we have uh, people up and move all the time now. I mean, I had a friend, they, uh, they got married and he said, uh, yeah, I think we're just going to move up to Baltimore area. I was like, oh, cool, why? And he said, well, we just want to see what that part of the country has to offer. And I was like, wow, that's, I mean, cool. If that's, if that's you know, there's, I don't think there's anything sinful in that. But how interesting that is, a way to view your life, right? How different it would have been in an ancient Near Eastern context. Where life and sustenance is where you grew up. It's, it's in your father's house. And he's called to leave. And he's no spring chicken, because he's 75 years old when he's called to do this. So in the world's eyes, his future doesn't look bright. Like, you could imagine people saying, Abram, be reasonable, man. Like what are what are you gonna do? How are you gonna provide for your big family? Like, 
how are you get, how are you going to live? Like this is a this is a young man's decision. This is a foolish decision, Abram. Don't do this. Um, another Bunyan work. I guess this is Bunyan Day. Um, Pilgrim's Progress. One of my favorite favorite stories. You'll if you, if you ever read that, you'll probably notice some similarities if you think about it between Christian's call in the Pilgrim's Progress to leave the city of destruction and go up the mountain to the celestial city as you know, Abram's call to leave his country, his kindred, and his father's house. Um, because you've got Christian who hears the evangelist call that, that, that God is going to rain down destruction on his city. And then he believes it so much that he's just he up and has to leave. And this is what, this is what Bunyan says. He says, so I saw in my dream that the man, Christian, began after he heard this call, began to run. Now, he had not run far from his own door when his wife and his children, perceiving it, began to cry aloud after him to return. But the man put his fingers in his ears and ran on crying, life, life, eternal life. So he could not look behind, but fled towards the middle of the plain. So Bunyan, uh, he, he continues and he says, actually, there are several guys from the city who were sent out after him to try to drag him back. But he just keeps going because he believes the call so much that it's true. So I'm sure Abram had some similar antagonists right on his journey. But in a real way, this, this call of, of Abram, the call of Bunyan's character Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, it's really the same call that you and I are called to in the Christian life. It's not some, it's not some esoteric call that's only special to them. It's, it's a call that of, of the Luke 14 variety, right? Does anybody remember what Jesus says, that shocking statement in Luke 14? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So hating father, mother, children, life, like how in the world could Jesus say this? Jesus, aren't you the guy who just told us to love our enemies? And wouldn't you certainly assume that we should love our family if we're to love our enemies so are you, are you having some bout of schizophrenia here where you can't figure out what you really want us to think, Jesus? No, obviously not. We know that this is a hyperbolic teaching. Jesus is not saying, hey, yeah, you can kind of love your enemies sometimes, but make sure you hate your family. That's, that's, not, that's not what he's saying. He's, he's, he's kind of jolting us into the reality of what full allegiance to him entails, though. Let's not be so quick to file down the teeth of a statement like that in Luke 24, because, because Jesus, or Luke 14 rather, because Jesus chose those words for a purpose, to have some kind of effect, to rattle our cage a little bit. He's shocking us into the reality of what complete allegiance means to him. It's an unfamiliar call, Right? The call to this kind of allegiance, to this kind of genuine faith, we just can't square that with the norms of our society. It just it doesn't work. Um, listen to John Calvin. Love this quote. One of my favorite quotes from John Calvin when he speaks about Abraham and actually his Galatians uh, commentary, Galatians 3. But He says, Let us remember that the condition 
of us all is the same with that of Abraham. All things around us are in opposition to the promises of God. He promises immortality. We are surrounded with mortality and corruption. He declares that he counts us righteous, but we're covered with our sins. He testifies that he is propitious and kind to us, but his outward judgments seem to threaten us with his wrath. What then is to be done, Calvin says? We must with closed eyes pass by ourselves and all things connected with us that nothing may hinder or prevent us from believing that God is true. Think about that just a second. We must pass, we must with, with, with closed eyes pass by ourselves and everything connected with us so that nothing can hinder or prevent us from believing that God is true. So, to consider the faith of Abraham is to consider our own faith. The call for Abraham to believe is the same call for every single believer in Christ to believe. Um, and in Galatians 3, when Paul says, talks about Abraham believing, he says that Abraham is actually not believing God for mere progeny and in land, but Paul argues in Galatians 3 that actually the land that Abram is believing God for is Jesus Christ. He's the, he's the one behind all those, all those kind of like immediate promises. So this is our promise as well. True faith is absolutely unexplainable. We have nothing to bring to the table. There's no good reason why you get to be a Christian and your pagan, unbelieving neighbor dies in their sin. There's no good reason, humanly speaking, why that should be the case, why you get this gift and they, and they wouldn't. Hopefully they will. Hopefully they will convert and the Lord will show them this grace. But you know it has nothing to do with anything internal to you. It's unexplainable. And it doesn't square with our experience in this life, the norms of this life, but the reward is worth it. We know it. We trust the promises of God. The reward is worth it, right? Truly, I say to you, Jesus says, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time and in the age to come eternal life. That's good news for people with shaky faith like you and me and Abraham. Any other thoughts about any of that? Questions that I probably can't answer? When he, uh, when he told him, said to the land that I will show you, mm-hmm. he, he didn't tell him where he was going. That's right. Says a little bit later, you read it in the 
For sure, for sure. Yeah, yeah. How is that for like a call? Hey, uh, leave everything you know. I get I'm a new deity, the one true deity, by the way. Um, and just start going, and I'll show you. <laughs> um, that's. Yeah, that's right. sojourners yeah that that verse about him going to Shechem and building this altar next week we'll see we'll kind of look at that that section again because we didn't have time to this morning but it's fascinating uh things in there the assumptions in there um in those couple of verses that help us consider the next part of the narrative so cool yeah Yeah, uh, I mean, could be. I, I think that I don't think it's unimportant detail. Um, I think that there, the, if that's the case, um, which it very well may be, it, it would still be that there's still like a turning point that that's that's having to happen. But maybe the Lord, you're right. Maybe the Lord is kind of preparing the the the, the spiritual and conceptual soil a little bit through that. Yeah. Sorry, this is one of the things that's answered clearly that I haven't seen yet. But, um, does it mention why Lot followed the crazy uncle out? I mean, like, you know, yeah. if you were doing that, people were like, don't, don't go after the crazy guy. You know, <laughs> you're, not, you're not him, you don't have to do it. Yeah. Does it mention why he trusted over a seat just part of the traveling caravan? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think that there was probably, because Abraham. 
Abram wasn't like he wasn't a pauper, right? I mean he he had he had some physical goods, and so he was probably um, he was probably a sustainer of his family in a lot of ways and, and other the his extended family, and so maybe that's maybe that's part of it. I'd have to dig a little deeper to you know. Uh, I don't know. I can't. I can't remember. I would just be guessing at this point. Right. Yeah. But even to to uproot all the wealth from your country, your kindred, and your father's house. Though he's still able to provide for himself, but man, when you're taking that on the road, <laughs> it's it's gonna it's gonna go quick. You don't have you can't recoup the costs in the same way. Um, possibly. Yeah, yeah, no. No. His dad was was dead. Okay, where's that? Is that in the? Okay. Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah, in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. So maybe he just didn't have, you know, one of his guys there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's good. It always helps to look back at the previous chapter, right? And get part of the narrative. All right, any other thoughts, guys, before we break? Cool. Well, thank you all.